Welcome to Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I have the green light on. <laughs> uh, Psalms chapter 31 is where we're going to deal with. Um, let's pray one more time before we get into it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Psalms. We thank you that you called us to shine that light. We pray that we would be true ambassadors of your truth. Uh, thank you for just this time to to really delve into what you've given us to understand your heart. Um, I pray that we would have that same heart that David had of just the heart after you. I just lift you up as we look at this chapter in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, Psalms chapter 31 is a prayer of deliverance and thanksgiving, but it's also a lament. And some think it's composed of two separate uh, psalms or two separate poems. The first part a deliverance from danger and then a deliverance from illness and enemies. Uh, there's a structure to it. There's It starts out with a call for help and then a, a confidence in God and then it moves into this prayer of despair and then deliverance and a, a resolution of of uh, of a call to the people to proclaim the truth. Um, the theme really covers this triumphant move from suffering to deliverance, and we'll see resurrection uh, kind of in this um, passage. Uh, and it, it kind of, we're not sure where it relates. Some think it's back when Saul was chasing David uh, and he got trapped in uh, uh, Kilia. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's something like that. <laughs> but he, it's a barred city and, and Saul came in and he was, he was going to like, they, he was like, yes, I finally trapped him in a barred city and like, we can go get him. Um, and so David's kind of stuck there. Some think it's when he was in Ziglag. Uh, those are First uh, Samuel 23 and and First Samuel 30, respectively. And some think this relates to the rebellion of Absalom um, in, in Second Samuel. Um, but there's such a wide scope that it probably relates to a variety of circumstances, and and that's valid. Uh, but it's quoted mostly by Jeremiah. Actually, some think Jeremiah actually wrote the psalm. Um, but the text says David wrote it, so I'm going to go with that. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. I, I think it says what it says for a reason. Um, but Jeremiah quotes it, Jonah quotes it, and Jesus quotes it. So there's some good history in this psalm. Um so let's get into it and we'll see where we go. Uh, for the choir director, a psalm of David, in you, O Lord, I've taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. 
in your righteousness deliver me and incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be my rock and my strength and a stronghold to save me. See this little progression in here that's deliver me, hear me, rescue me, and save me. There's there's just this desperation. Um, listen and respond to, to, to my call to you. Uh and, and, and he starts out with this confidence, I mean, never waver. I, I don't want to be misplaced. I want to put all of my trust in you. And I think that's a key from David's heart, that that's where he's at. He goes on, for you are my rock and my fortress. Uh, for your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. Uh, it's, it's to his glory that he leads us and guides us, Right? If we're lost, we need a shepherd, right? It's it's his purpose. But first, we have to be willing to be led. And David says, I am a willing uh, follower. Guide me, direct me, give me direction. Um, first, we have to be led. Then he directs us in the way we're to go. And then he sends us out in that will of for him, for us to do what he's called us to do, right? He's given us an example. He gives us the picture. And then he tells us, go and do it, right? So David is praying that God manifest himself as he knows him to be as the one who directs, as the one who guides, as the one who sends me out. And and you see that. You will, uh, verse 4, you will pull me out of the net, which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. And in you, your hand, I commit my spirit. You've ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Interesting, you see this transition as it's going through. He starts with, be my rock. Then he goes into, you are my rock. I I trust you. Be this. You are this. And then he finally moves to this, this faith. You will pull me out of the nets. You know, David isn't saying he's already in the net. He's saying, I trust that as I get captured... Because the reality is I'm messed up. I I fall. And we all do that. But as we know that we will fall, he is faithful to deliver us in those moments. He trusts the Lord. And when he unwittingly gets entangled, knowing he will, he commits himself to the Lord. And I think this is a key point. That we need to know, yeah, we're not perfect. We're going to fall. And we need to resolve ourselves first to know that he is there to deliver us. He is one who draws us out. Interesting here, the statement is used as part of the evening prayers for for Israel they would they would pray their evening prayers and so as they pray when they go to bed this is the basis of that prayer into your hands i commit my spirit i'm trusting you to keep me alive till tomorrow morning because who knows what's going to happen when you're sleeping the enemy could come in and slaughter you in your bed 
And we see that kind of thing happening in Israel today. I mean, raids, whatever happens. So their prayer is, God, entrust my spirit, my soul to you. Whatever happens. Jesus quotes this on the cross in Luke. And he calls out to the Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so as we read through this, that's the reference. This is the reference he's making. He is calling Israel to this psalm as he says that. And what happens in the next verse, or in the next half of the the verse? You have ransomed me, O Lord God of truth. So we see this idea that Jesus is actually proclaiming that the Father is going to resurrect him, bring him back to life. But for us, Jesus is calling the people to say, this is my ransom. This is the means for me to be delivered, is the death of Christ. And so you see both of those happening in this verse. It's us answering, you have redeemed me. You've set me free. Stephen says the same thing. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. As they're stoning him to death. First Peter says, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Now, I'm going to pose a question. Is that suffering in the will of God, or is it that you're doing the will of God, thus you suffer for it? Let's grapple with that for a moment. Second Timothy goes on to say, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. There's a place where you, if you are going to follow Christ, will suffer for it. Now that may be very minimal or it very may be very great. But as that happens, we are called to entrust ourselves to God because he is faithful to deliver. And for David, he knew that as that is the character of his God, that his soul would be protected from the enemy. Verse 6 says, I have, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. Interesting, some have translated you hate as opposed to I hate. And I think, I think both are, are valid that if we're going to take on the heart of God, we follow. He, he doesn't regard vain idols. We don't regard vain idols. Same thing. I hate people that are, that are trusting this. And, and I hate that they've lost that understanding of value. Interesting, this worthless idols is literally, or vain idols, worthless idols, some of you say lying, uh, lying vanities, but it literally can be translated the nothings of emptiness. That's what they've put their trust in. 
empty nothing. And the reality is we can trust in anything. Doesn't mean it's going to do any good. But what you put your trust in is very important because it turns into this is whether I stand or I fall. If I trust something that can't be trusted, I'm going to fall. And that's what he says. I hate that people trust this emptiness. And that's valid. If you love people, you should hate that they trust emptiness. Because it's ultimately going to be their destruction. You should grieve over that for people. It should hurt you. And that's the heart of Christ. What are these empty things? You know, you've got astrology, you've got omens, enchantments, divinations. How could we put it into reality and call it money or media? What do you trust? Is it emptiness? Is it a vain thing to trust in? Jonah 2.8 says, Those who regard vain idols forsake their own faithfulness or mercy. They have given up the opportunity to receive mercy. They no longer can be faithful because they don't trust anything that empowers them. That's a very scary place to be. But I, I trust in the Lord. This moves a, a, a not only a new verb that I trust, but a new subject. What do I trust in? The Lord. David expresses his loyalty to God alone. Everything else is emptiness and vain. Verse 7 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You've known the troubles of my soul and you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. You set my feet on a large place. He is the God of loving kindness, of mercy, of grace, who sees. He's conscious of the problems that we have. And he knows, having experienced the abuse of the world himself, he knows what you're going through. He is the God that has endured suffering and met us in our own struggles. Donald Williams notes, God had intimate fellowship in the midst of his suffering. He met David while he was suffering, while he was struggling, while he was barred in in a city. Interesting, these troubles and adversities implies a a narrowing or a cramping 
that that I have been just boxed in. In contrast to this next verse, uh, verse 8, that says, you've put my feet in large places. Uh, the message actually uh, translate or paraphrases. <laughs> the message is not a translation, just so you know. Uh, it paraphrases, or this idea to God gives us breathing room. Instead of feeling like we're just crushed and oppressed and struggling, he places us in a place as we come into his presence in a place of rest, in a place that is freedom and unrestraint. You know, we all have those times. We lose focus on God. And we feel like everything's crashing in. He says, God placed me in an open space. And his focus is on the work of God here. This is what God does. Verse 8, there's a little transition. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. Interesting, he changes the subject. It becomes, it went from this declarative, you are, you have, you will, to I, me, they. And that's the problem. When we lose that focus on God, we get back to that despair place. We get back to that place that feels tight and enclosed as opposed to knowing what God's done. And we become desperate, distracted from the face of God, which leads to desperation, which is where we need to be, desperate for the Lord. See the cycle repeating? That's the heart of David, where he says, I trust the Lord, I struggle, I have to look back at the Lord and entrust myself to him again, which puts me back where I need to be. That's a cycle of life, and God allows all of those things for that purpose, so that we become, again, desperate for him. Verse 10, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of iniquity. My body is wasted away because of all my adversities. I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the streets flee from me and I am forgotten as a dead man. Out of mind... I'm like a broken vessel. Interesting, um, some of your Bibles will translate uh, misery, sorrow, or affliction, uh, which is actually the word in the Septuagint, while others will translate it iniquity, which is what the Masoretic text says. So there's, there is a distinction, a, a discrepancy between those uh, manuscripts, this word is actually different. But if you notice what's happening here, 
the reality of misery and affliction and iniquity become complementary thoughts. They are interchangeable because iniquities cause misery. Do you see how that works? And so as, as we look at these, these little discrepancies within uh, the, the, the text that we have, this is what we're seeing, is these complementary discrepancies. So there isn't a heart change in any of these textural variances. But I did want you to point that out, that there is a variation. And, and so we don't know what the original word was. Granted, it is being translated from you know, Aramaic to Hebrew or to Latin or to, you know, uh, Greek. So validly, there's, there's validity in having discrepancy in that relate reality. But one thing I want you to notice here, who's iniquity? What he says, um, my strength has failed because of iniquity. There's no subject. And I think it's intentional because he's speaking prophetically. As we saw in a moment ago, Jesus is saying this on the cross. This may be prophetic picture of Jesus saying, it is because of the iniquities of the world that all of my body fails. I am taking on the sins of the world for the iniquities, for, for the purpose of cleansing you. You see this, this prophetic picture that's happening? And it wasn't his that he's taking on. For David, on the other side, it could be his own iniquities that are causing his problem. Or, as king, it could be the iniquities of the people. Why is he struggling? Because he's ruling a bunch of, you know, pig-headed people uh, that are defiant. Being abandoned by everyone, forgotten, broken, left for dead. This is a picture of Christ on the cross. On the other side, it's a picture of David struggling as Saul's coming to attack him. He's got his little band of rebels, but all his friends have disappeared and be like, we're not getting killed with you. Later on, Absalom, he runs off and he's hiding and Absalom takes over the kingdom. Oh, you know, he's he's kind of rejected. We, we want to follow this cool looking guy. He's, he's, yeah, he's what we want. He's not what God wants, but he's what we want. Interesting, the, the revised uh, renders this, I am a scorn of all my adversaries, a horror to my neighbors. The biblical Hebrew renders it, I have become a disgrace to all my enemies and my neighbors wag their heads. Which brings you back to this idea of Christ on the cross. What did they do? They wagged their heads at Christ. 
they mocked him and took advantage of, of his state of rejection. Life isn't easy. And the damage that sin inflicts upon us has destructive consequences. And God knows and he sees that. And he expects us to call for him for help. And he will. He meets us in that. He wants to provide the grace, but we need to ask for it. We are to become desperate for him. That's why he allows the struggles you face. So that you can become desperate for him. For David, it wasn't just a one and done call, but a repetitive heart call throughout his life. And in our imperfections, that should be happening in your life. It should be a cycle. Because God allows that cycle for us to get back to that desperation. And we need to be aware that those struggles are not only from enemies. He's not just delivering us from the other people. He's delivering us from ourselves. That's where the real deliverance happens. Because we are naturally destructive. As fallen beings, we need redemption. We are broken vessels. What did Jeremiah say about this? The vessel was spoiled in the potter's hand. So he remade it into another vessel. He says that God said, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. You've been broken. He says, that's okay. You've been spoiled. That's okay. I will remake you into a new creation. And that's our trust with God today. That he is reforming us into something new. Something that we weren't before. Changing us into his image. For I have heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side why they take counsel together against me. They scheme and take away my life. As for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Deliver me. God numbers our days. And he orders them. He knows how far you're going to go. He sets times and seasons. Matthew Henry writes, He knows the best and fittest time for our deliverance, and we must be willing to wait for it. There's something to that. We want deliverance now. We want out of the struggles we're facing. 
Sometimes he allows that. And that's okay. We live in faith that he is faithful to deliver us in his time. And he meets us in the struggle at the moment and guides us through it. Daniel says he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings. He raises up kingdoms. Romans says all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even those bad times, even the struggles, there's a purpose. And it is working out good. Even though it seems horrid and it seems like misery at the moment, there's a purpose to it. And he is allowing it. And it may not be just for you. It may be like David for us to look back and be like, look at his faithfulness. It's for other people to experience something, to see how God worked out things despite him. Verse 16, make your face shine upon your servant and save me in your loving kindness. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent and sheal. Let the lying lips be muted, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. What does the word say? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Interesting, this is a reference to the Shema back in number 6. That God's favor be on your servant. But it may relate to Moses as well. He's looking back to the glory of God shining on Moses' face. And what happened? He comes off the mountain and he radiates this light after encountering a face-to-face experience with God. And so that's what he's praying. Lord, Let your servant radiate your image to the world. Let your face shine upon me so that I can reflect you. Verse 19 says, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. God has goodness stored up for us. That's exciting. There is goodness stored up for you. As you fear, respect, honor, trust him. The goodness is meant to be revealed to the people around you. It's not just for you. It is goodness towards you so that they see the glory of God. Arthur Weiser says, The way to God does not lead the poet away from suffering, but through the midst of suffering, and at the same time, beyond it. That's our trust in the Lord. 
He is going to lead us through and beyond. To infinity and beyond, right? <laughs> Titus 3, 4 says, When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. When we saw his face, that's when the salvation happens. Not on the basis of deeds we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Not because we did anything, but because he loves. And that's who God is. He shines his face on us so that we can receive that mercy and we can entrust ourselves to the God that we see. But we have to look to him. You can't see somebody's face if your back is to him. Verse 20, you hid them in a secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. You kept them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. You know, as we entrust ourselves to God, there is this protection that he gives us against the conspiracies of the world, against the effects of what people say. In one sense, our ears are guarded that we don't hear or we don't listen to their stupidity, that they're talking about us or whatever is going on. But on the other side, and maybe better, our hearts are guarded that as we experience those conflicting words, our hearts are so guarded that, that we, we aren't conflicted by them. It doesn't bother us. We're indifferent to that because we know it's, it has no value. And it's not true. And so we don't worry about it. We're given a secret place in his presence. Shelter from the strife of tongues. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. Where is he? He's in a city where chaos reigns. He is in a world of fallen messes. Yet, he has made marvelous his loving kindness in the midst of that. That's that's the reality. He meets us in the midst of distress. Some of these translate besieged city as, as distress. He has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in my distress. While I'm struggling, it just clicks. God loves me, and he's meeting me here, and he's going to get me through this, and so I can rest now in him. 
Verse 22, as for me, I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplication when I cried to you. You know, we looked at that same thought in the last chapter where he says, you've hidden your face from me. Why? So that you become desperate for me. And what happens? That's exactly what happens. I was cut off and I became anxious and worried. And he says, listen, he already heard me. Before I became anxious and worried and distressed. He knows that. And he lets you go there. And what did the woman say? And Jesus says, do you believe? She says, I believe. Help my unbelief. <laughs> I've got some struggles. And what did he do? He helped her unbelief. He met her in that place. Arthur Weiser concludes that there is no longer anything which separates him from his God, not even his suffering. For this has become for him a bond which only binds him to God more closely and more firmly. You know, we look at the church around the world that's suffering. And we're like, why is this happening? Could it be that it is just there to increase faith? To build them up in holiness? So that we can look at what God is doing despite the world and glorify him. Verse 23, Oh, love the Lord, all you, his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. He preserves the faithful and humbles the proud. We can stand on both sides off and on. Sometimes we're faithful. Sometimes we get a little proud. And he balances that. He deals with us in the place where we are and meets us in our need. What does he say? Let your heart take courage. Some translate this. He shall strengthen your heart. You see this, this tension where we act, we take courage, and he acts, and he strengthens. And I think that's important. And there's a reason, as we look at these different translations, that there's that tension in, in how we translate it, because the tension is supposed to be there. God's doing it. We're doing it. We are working in conjunction with his heart. But David ends with the call to the Lord 
to stand courageous and to hope in him. What's the hope? That God will see you through. That's our trust today. Corinthians 16, 13 says, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. That's the conclusion here. Despite whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're going through, stand, trust him, and continue to act in his character of love. Don't let the world bring you to hate. Let the Spirit guard you in a heart of love. Father, we thank you. You are the God that hears, that sees, and the God that has experienced all the struggles that we need to overcome, and you have already overcome. We thank you that you are king of the universe, and you meet us in our needs. Help us to trust in you today. In Jesus' name, amen.